Hi, this is Rachel Zucker, and this is Commonplace, Conversations with Poets and Other People. This is episode 16, in which I speak with poet and Emory University professor Jericho Brown. I spoke with Jericho on October 16, 2016, in a lovely but crowded cafe space in the Ludlow Hotel in New York City. We sat in the cafe so Jericho could catch a bite before he had to head out to the poetry event that had brought him to New York. There is background noise and a few interruptions, but, as in his poems, Jericho's voice is unmistakable, direct, clear, always compelling. Jericho's poems are moving, unflinching, and vulnerable, and Jericho is a delight to be around and to talk with. Jericho writes in his two books, Please and the New Testament, about race, masculinity, and sexuality. We talk about all these things and about writing about family, being a private person, gossip, empathy, and prayer. Recently, there have been several poetry scandals and controversies in the poetry world, and in the middle of this conversation, Jericho and I talk about the question of what could or should be the professional and social consequences for writers when they behave badly. Behaving badly is not a new occurrence, but we talk about how we should watch out for one another in the poetry community and how poetry can help us act right. Another bit of potentially helpful context, Jericho and I talked just a few days after the video of Billy Bush and Donald Trump, who was then blissfully president of nothing, uh, was aired. So that conversation enters into our conversation as well. But no more about that right now. Let's start this new year off on a good foot Whether it's through poetry or prayer or whatever guides you, let's figure out how to act right and how to take care of each other. Thank you, thank you, thank you to my wonderful patrons. You'll get some great bonus files along with the release of this episode, including Jericho reading John Milton's Sonnet 19. Tremendous thanks to New Issues Press and Copper Canyon Press for donating books which will make our next Commonplace raffle possible. These raffles for patrons have been so much fun. To find out how to become a patron of Commonplace, go to commonpodcast.com where you will also find great resources connected to each episode as well as our new Commonplace bookstore. commonpodcast.com slash shop which was created by the fabulous Zach Tackett. This online bookstore features episode galleries with affiliate links to all of the books mentioned throughout each of our podcasts. We also have a gallery of recommended reads from each person who works on Commonplace, including our producers and our Commonplace advisor, Daniel Schiffman. By using our bookstore's links to shop online, you provide us with another way of paying for the tools we use every day to keep the podcast running. We are so thankful for any support that you can provide. Two more quick pieces of news. We are running a new challenge. If we can get 10 new patrons or at least $60 in patron pledges by January 15th, we will release a third episode in January. So please visit the Commonplace website or www.patreon.com backslash commonplace podcast to become a patron of the show. 
And lastly, please consider rating and reviewing the podcast on iTunes. It really helps us to reach new listeners. Okay, here's Jericho. You can ask me whatever you want. <laughs> you ask me one of the softball questions. All right. Or I'll, start of, with, I'll start with You can ask me the hardest question first. Okay. This one was hard because it surprised me. I don't know if it's going to be hard for you. It was, it was a surprise to me. So You were surprised that you wanted to know it? No. Okay. So this morning I was reading that piece in Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Yes. Weird name of a thing, but okay. It's a newspaper. Okay. Oh my God, it's one of the major newspapers right. of the country okay. and definitely in the Just South. the word constitution in there <laughs> threw me a little bit. <laughs> so, Rachel, you are so... Um, all right. So I, I love the piece. How am I going to even get this one question out? I love the piece. I love the poems. I love the pictures. I love the quotes from you. I love the quotes about you. But in the middle of the piece, there was a part where uh, whoever was writing it calls up your mom and dad. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. And asks them. Is this true? Yeah, they're, act, they're like fact checking yeah. you. Yeah, isn't that something? It was something, and I I was caught by surprise. Yeah, yeah, yeah. At, you at, were at my <laughs> own feelings yeah. that this was inappropriate. It yeah, felt yeah. like a boundary violation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that was really surprising to me because I thought, oh. So in journalism, it's not okay, but in poems, it is okay. Mm -hmm. And I'd never had that response before. Mm -hmm. And so I wanted to ask you, like, okay, so you used to write speeches for the yeah, mayor yeah. of New Orleans. Mm -hmm. You're a poet. You you tweet. You're you know you're a teacher. You, you I have use a tweeting language. problem actually. All yeah. right. Well, so let's you know. You use language in a lot of different places yeah, yeah, yeah. for a lot of different audiences, for a lot of different, in a lot of genres and medium, media. What, I guess what I'm saying is, is language language or are there different rules for, for these different places and spaces of language? And where does poetry fall for you in terms of the freedom or limitation to reveal things or the relationship between truth, ethics, professional standards? Because I was just really surprised by yeah. my response to that. Yeah. Well, there are different rules because different genres, different forms ask for and require different things. And if something is published in the newspaper, then you have to investigate that thing. You have to have something, some way of knowing that it is factual. Um, there were other things that I had said that he couldn't investigate mm -hmm. because uh, there was no proof and there were things that weren't in the article about those things. For instance, I had told him about how um, about getting followed um, by police officers. But of course, there's no it's not like I got their badge number or anything like that. Do you know what I mean? Um, the thing that happened with my parents that was interesting to me is that I had forgotten about the form that I was dealing in. Um, it wasn't until that moment that he mentioned that he was going, that he asked for their phone number. Wow. That I was like, what? <laughs> I was like, what do you want their phone number for? You know, like, did you, did you, and I didn't say that, mm -hmm. but I did think it. And almost as quickly as I thought it, 
I thought, oh yeah, that's what I've been doing. You know, this guy, he comes to my house, he calls me, he asks me these very personal questions that, and I ended up talking with him, his name's Jeremy Redman. Mm -hmm. I, I ended up talking with him about things that I realized I hadn't talked to anyone about other than a therapist here or there. Do you know what I mean? Like right. I really hadn't said any of these things. And it was very strange because as a poet, you get so used to having all of your life's material available to you mm -hmm. that you don't realize that there are things that you haven't said yet. Like you have no... You hadn't said those things in poems that you said to him. I had said, yes, I had said them in poems. Right. But saying something in the poem, because you say something in a poem, there is always artifice that creates a boundary between you and the person who reads the poem. Um, there's always that guy we keep calling the speaker. Do you know what I mean? Right. No matter how much a poem is about you, no matter how much you know a poem is about you, no matter how much you understand that the reader is going to garner the fact that the poem is about you, you still feel like there's some sort of a offense. But so at, the, at that moment, you didn't say to, what's his name, Jeremy, Jer, <laughs> Jeremy Redman. Jeremy Redman. You didn't say to Jer, Jeremy Redman, Oh, you want the phone number for the speaker's parents? That's, <laughs> no. No, you were like, no. that's my, those I, are my parents. No, I gave him, I gave him their phone number. Right. And I gave him my sister's phone number and I gave him uh, my cousin's phone number. And I, um, I let him know in advance what their answers were going to be, <laughs> you know, because I know that they don't want to accept things that they must remember. Mm -hmm. um, and I also know that even if they remember these things, they don't necessarily think that these things should be made public. Um, so when he, when he was asking me these questions, you know, I would let him know things and I realized I was having more and more feelings about how personal things were getting. Um, me, like it's a weird thing because I'm the guy who preaches to his students that you know the thing that happened to you mm -hmm. when you were 10 mm -hmm. needs to be the same as the shoestring needs to be the same as a tree needs to be the same as this fact you know about science in order to write poetry all of these things have to be material that you can just at any given moment while you're working on the poem it can fall in uh -huh. and I really believe that that's how we make our poems. You know, it's very, it's very Adrian Rich. It's very Langston Hughes. Do you know what I mean? Like that, that the stuff of our lives has to come to some sort of equal footing where if we need it or if it comes up in the, in the, in the act of writing, it has to come down. And yet talking about these, you know, I'm a really, in spite of the fact that I'm willing to use all of these for the poems, I'm a very private person. Like mm -hmm. as an individual, I don't, go around telling people my business. Do you know what I mean? I do. I mean, let's go back for one quick second to Adrienne Rich because I just read this thing about her when I was uh, writing about confessional poetry and she was, I, I didn't know this about her, but, um, but she was really critical of Robert Lowell mm -hmm. for the way in which he wrote about mm -hmm. his family and mm -hmm. other people in his mm -hmm. life. And there was one quote I remember where he has this, um, you know, he has a poem that's sort of about, you know, who does it hurt more, me or you, to write these poems? Mm -hmm. And and Adrian Rich called it bullshit eloquence. Mm -hmm. You know that mm -hmm. of course, you know don't I, I don't know hurt other people, right? Yeah, okay. Yeah. So it's, I'm interested in that, and that was actually my second question was, 
you know, I have so many students, as I'm sure you do, who are asking this question all the time, as I ask it to myself, mm-hmm. you know, wanting to write particularly out of trauma, out of abuse, out of harm. Um, and, you know, on the one hand, I also have have told them for a long time, you've got to write what you've got to write. Mm-hmm. Um, and make that available to you and if you spend your whole life avoiding writing about these things at the same time there are real consequences to other people Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and I try in my own life not to be a hurtful person Mm -hmm. I mean reading that piece was so I I did you know that the guy was gonna read your poems over the phone to your mom and dad no I thought that was so (laughs) <laughs> like I might, you should have yeah, seen yeah. me. My eyes were just, you know, <laughs> what's happening? And you know, and then yeah. I, I, you know, I wanted to ask you, like, you know, it seems like from the piece um, that you're still not speaking with them. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. You know, they not haven't accepted yeah, you. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, and I wondered if that break from them, or that estrangement—I don't know exactly the the word that feels accurate to you whether it's only painful or whether there's also some freedom in it, like that you can you can write what you need to write in your poems. Yeah, it's the most complex feeling that I have um, in the world because I love my parents and understand that they love me um, and understand that their concept of loving me might be different from my concept of how I want to be loved and vice versa, right? Um, but I also feel that you know Rachel when I was very young and I would say like six I was already under the impression that I wasn't going to have my parents Mm. so this is something that I have been preparing for for a very long time like I, I you know I knew where I was growing up and what situation I was growing up in and you know, I take things, I think, too seriously. You know, I, I watched enough episodes of, like, Phil Donahue and Oprah when I was a kid. Do you know what I mean? Like, and I took little things that I, like, little after-school special things, like the truth about Alex. Like, <laughs> you know, like, I took those things very seriously, and I knew that they weren't congruent to the life that I was living as, mm. as an evangelical fundamentalist Christian kid. Do you know? Mm-hmm. So I knew that I was, I knew that I would be at risk of losing my parents in a certain way. But I also knew that I had to do my work. Mm-hmm. Um, and I do think having some sort of separation allows me to do my work at the same time. Do I want to have that separation? No. Mm-hmm. I mean, what I want, what I've asked my parents for is for us to like be able to talk about things other than what I like to do in bed. <laughs> you know I mean? Right. Cause I don't want to know what they like to do in bed. Right. And you know, I would rather them not want to know what I like to do in bed, but they think it's their Christian responsibility mm-hmm. every time we speak over the phone or in person to say something to me about it. And you know, a lot of my friends tell me that I should be able to sort of take that or handle that, but I don't have the mental or emotional capacity at this point in my life. I um, mean, maybe I will get that capacity cause they're not, they're not going to change. Mm-hmm. Um, so right now I just have to deal with the fact that we sort of communicate via my sister. Um, and you know, I call them on, um, 
I didn't call my dad on his birthday this year, but generally I call him on his birthday and um, I call my mom on her birthday. I call him on their anniversary. I call him at Christmas. You know, we, we, we do, we talk, but even then when we talk, I have to hear this stuff about how I'm going to hell. And, you know, mm-hmm. it's sort of like, even for those very short conversations, I have to pe- prepare myself for that moment. Like, you know, I'm sitting around chanting and doing prayers just to talk to my mom and dad because I don't want to, like, be in a conversation where I cuss them out. <laughs> Do you understand what I mean? So, which, which is why doing that article was really important to me because I think people's idea about queer experience and the experience of coming out, the advice that people give to people is sort of based in something that isn't the reality for everyone. It's definitely not the reality for me. You know, Mm. this idea that, oh, you know, they'll get over it, they'll embrace you, or, you know, oh, they'll be uncomfortable at first, but over time, you know, no. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? Like, it's it's just not the case for everyone. And I'm happy for the people for whom it is the case. I have a friend who I was talking to recently, and he he actually went on trips to tell these people he was closest to that you know he was he had figured out that he was gay, mm-hmm. and um, and everyone was so accepting of him, and I was like, wow, everyone? He's like, yes, and I was like, magic, you know, what I mean? and you know, it just is not the case for me mm-hmm. and my family. I always thought that it would be as simple as separating as everyone else does separating my work separating my career from what I talk to my parents about you know if I were an architect for instance I would not expect that my parents come take a walk through the mall I designed if I was a checkout guy at Kroger I would not expect my parents to come look over my shoulder to see look at how good I check people out. Do you understand what I'm saying? And so I never thought it was necessary for me to send my parents a book. Mm-hmm. Um, I never, and, and it really, and it actually wasn't because I'm a poet. So I, I wasn't in any situation where my world was going to cross over into their world. It just wasn't going to happen. They weren't going to go buy your book in the bookstore. Exactly. Uh-huh. Uh, they don't have a computer, Rachel. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. You know, they're not internet people. And then Facebook happened. Um, and you know, I had already decided I was going to be a writer before Facebook happened and Facebook happened and it, Facebook became, um, and you, you remember this, it became like this sort of thing where even if it didn't end up being necessary, it started to seem as if it was necessary. Like how do you, you know, if you're a new person trying to like get somebody to know that you have a book in the world, Mm -hmm. it seemed like you were supposed to be, you were also supposed to be a social media, social media person in some way or another. And, um, I think because other people in my family were a part of that, um, they quickly became aware that I was a person with with a book. And they would say to my mom and dad, like, what's going on with the book? And my my mom and dad would ask me, and I was like, what book? (laughs) Book? (laughs) And that worked? (laughs) It worked at first. Um, but, but, but it didn't work by the time Eugene Redman was calling him. <laughs> <laughs> Eugene Redman. I mean to say Jeremy Redman. Yeah. Eugene Redman's a poet. Um, Jeremy Red, Redman was calling him on the phone. It wasn't working then. But, you know, they had never read my work in spite of the fact that by that time, you know, this, I mean, just to give you an idea of sort of what I think of as hugely problematic, if somebody had written a book and they were my child, 
even if they hadn't shared it with me, I would be I would be nosy enough to go <laughs> kind of figure out well, what's going on. Right. Do you know what I mean? Especially I if do. they hadn't shared it with me. My mom and dad by that time knew I had books and still hadn't like he read them poems that they had never heard before because I wasn't gonna read them those poems. I mean, this do you is, understand? What I, I, mean? I do, but it's also totally uh, like beyond belief in a certain way because you know there's two things that that we're talking about that overlap um one is queerness and one is being a poet Mm -hmm. and they're totally willing to look the other way and not be involved and not care about your poetry Mm -hmm. life Mm -hmm. but meanwhile they can't they can't get over (laughs) what you do in bed as you said and so you know i guess i guess i mean it's just so um it it sounds really painful yeah. and also such a loss. Yeah. Um, that I can't, you know, as a as a mother, I can't imagine on any level not wanting yeah. to cross whatever territory, treacherous as it may seem to me, to be with my kid, uh-huh. you know, in some mm-hmm. way. Yeah. I mean, I guess the question is like, you know, if you weren't gay do you think that they would be interested in you as a poet or are, or are they just, you know, it's not, you know, would, would they still be upset if you were writing about them in ways that were truthful, but not necessarily, they would so still be upset. They would still be because upset. the violence, whether I was gay or not, I mean, I do think the fact of me being gay probably made for more violence. I think that's part of what um, my father was trying to beat out of me sometimes, but it, the violence still would have been there. I mean, he still would have been a very violent person from a very violent family. <laughs> Do you know what I yeah. mean? Like my, my, my father's side of the family is there are a bunch of violent people, you know, um, and that violence would have still been a part of that. But the, the shame that he has around that also would have been there. So if I was writing about that, right. whether I was gay or not, he would still have trouble with my writing. Yeah. So. He definitely, I mean, they've never been support even before when I was talking about being a writer. I mean, but most parents are this way. You right. know what I mean? Young people, like they come, they come telling their parents, people come tell their ter- parents they want to be a poet, and their parents look at them like, why are you doing this to me? I did not go to work for you. <laughs> like, I don't feed you for you to tell me you're going to be a poet. Do you know what I mean? So. I do. I do know. I do know what you mean, but I also, you know, I mean, that article like stirred up so much stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and there's know. a lot, there's a lot there, but I mean, that's why I'm, I'm glad I did it. Right. Because the emails that I got back are more important to yeah. me. From your parents? No. No, from for other people, people reading it, yeah. Who have similar experiences mm-hmm. and who also sort of feel locked out of this conversation that is the conversation around coming out and the conversation around queerness, which. I feel like that 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 Jeremy outed you though in a certain way, you know. To my parents. To your you parents. Mean? Well, no, I, because as my a parents poet in knew. This particular way. My parents knew. I mean, by the time Jeremy called them, they knew why we weren't talking on the phone. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah, but they hadn't read your poems no. or those poems. No, that's, that's what true. I mean. That's true. That's true. Um, but you know, they, it's. I haven't lied in a poem. Right. You know what I mean? Like, you know, like, you know how, like, we're, we're always talking about, um, you know, if you need to make something up in a poem, like if it was red and that sounds not that, you know, yellow rhymes, but red was what it really was. Use, rel- use yellow. Do, do you understand what yeah, I mean? Like I we tell our students this, this, this type of thing all the time. But when it comes to, and maybe this speaks to what you're saying about 
Adrian Rich, when it comes to writing about other people, particularly when I know that they're not going to be seen in the best light, I don't lie. Yeah. I mean, as a matter of fact, I leave things out (laughs) so that Uh they can, you know what I mean? Like what I try to do with the characters in my poems and what I try to do with myself. I mean, I try to be hard on myself in my poems. And I and I and even if I'm hard on my characters in my poems, then I try to make them tender. You know, the whole purpose is to show empathy for everyone in the work. Bless God. Hey, is there ketchup? Sure. And is there a Coca-Cola? Thank you. <laughs> Can we break for a second? Yeah, I'm gonna put this. All right, let me. This is related, actually. We're moving from gossip to. To gossip. Yes, yeah, sort of. I mean. <laughs> from gossip to better gossip. I mean, no, it's not good. But yeah. what I mean is, there's something folklorish about being a poet. Like this, yeah. this, this story about, like the stories about um, the ways in which. Um, Snodgrass was shunned after he wrote that book with all the Nazi persona. Like, that's a thing that when you're a poet, it's like... Or how about how, like, nasty he was about Anne Sexton. Or how nasty he was about Anne Sexton. Or how Sylvia Plath used to get mad at at Ted Hughes and and burn his manuscripts. You know, like, these little things are, like, part of our folklore. They're part of our mythology. You know what I mean? Which I think is actually... You know, I think it's... I mean, it's... You don't Useful. think it just makes us petty? No, no, and small. I think it no, I think it gives us I think it gives us mythology. Okay. Like I think it okay. gives us ways to think about the world through archetypal figures. Um, you know, when I think about so the um, when I think about Gwendolyn Brooks and Robert Hayden and the reaction that the Fist students had to them when they went to their conference on black writing, mm-hmm. right? That's the kind of stuff that's like at the back of how I have to think about being a writer, period. Right. Do you understand what I'm saying? Yeah, so part of what we're talking about, I think, and this is, you know, seems essential to me, is about being yourself in a poem, also the protection of poetry in a way, as a form, um, the speaker, um, how all these like boundaries and boundary violations, but also the ways in which there's like so much, you know, spillage and connection between people Mm -hmm. and interaction so one of my questions is about bad people Mm -hmm. um Mm -hmm. you know i read this other piece this interview in the nashville review Mm -hmm. and you were talking about elliot and stevens and you said uh yet as manipulators of words they've done amazing work with the english language in their essays and in their poems in order for me to fully enjoy that i have to understand that these are people and that people do evil things okay now that i know that let's go read the poem and see if i like it mm-hmm. and i i really like that and i i i'm struggling because there's this thing going on right now in poetry and out of poetry but let's just talk about it in poetry for a second you know a move among editors at presses or people who are in the position of some power at universities to drop someone from the press or disinvite them from the university if they have said or done something that's nasty misogynist unsavory Mm -hmm. uh, unethical Mm -hmm. sexual impropriety and on the one hand i feel like yeah don't give that person any bandwidth don't give them an invitation don't pay them money i'm totally happy about that move on the other hand i feel like 
there are a lot of people who are bad mm -hmm. or who have done bad things <laughs> whose artwork uh -huh. is really important to me uh -huh. and 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 also our standards of what's bad behavior change i mean if you mm -hmm. want to think about it yeah. that oh, way yeah. anybody oh, yeah. who was gay mm -hmm. would yeah. be considered bad oh, yeah, yeah. Um, that's bullshit mm -hmm. so i'm really torn because i see this moment um i don't want to read work or be exposed to work that is homophobic, misogynist, racist. But I, I know there are people and they're human beings who are not like-minded with me, who I don't respect all the things that they in their personal life say or do, and they still maybe have work that's pretty important. And I want that work to be in the world. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's actually, I'm 100% that if a bunch of women are saying that you sexually assaulted them. Yeah, we know what we're both it, talking it's about. It's a good idea not to have that person around your students. That's for sure. <laughs> um, and so that's really that on. Yeah. I mean, like, you know, there are bad things that people do. And once we get the feel and the understanding that they do them, there's no reason yeah. for us to take those bad things around our students. Yeah. There's but no reason to books? put our students at risk. Books might be different, but I think this is going to be up to the individual. Right. Right. Um, I think that whenever you're teaching a poem, if you know there's a thing about the poet, then you have to tell your students. Because if your student falls in love with a poem and mm -hmm. then they have to go meet that person, they need to know, oh, this person could call you the N-word in the middle of a conversation. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you need to be ready for that. Like, you might love this poem in which he doesn't say the N-word, <laughs> but, but I'm telling you it could happen. Do you understand right. what I mean? So yeah. I think, I mean, I just think you have to be a full and a whole teacher. Um, if you're an editor, I think you have to be a full and a whole editor and you have to make a decision about whether or not you want to spread that work. And you also have to read that work with a different kind of lens now. Mm -hmm. Like once you know something about some, someone, you have to read the work and wonder, wait, does this sort of support that evil position <laughs> that right. he has about these other things? Do you know what I'm saying? And then given that new lens that you have, you have to decide if you're going to continue to publish that person's work. Um, but yeah, I I think I also think I also think that just because we did not have these things to our we didn't know these things. We didn't even know that these were things about which it was okay for us to be concerned. Yeah. When we were undergrads and we were learning, you know, as you said earlier, Robert Lowell. Do you right, know what I mean? Right. Like when we were when we were learning these things, we we took things wholesale. We were like, okay, well, you told me that's important, then that's important, even if I don't like it. <laughs> like I'm just like, okay, well, I guess I got to figure it out. Mm -hmm. Do you understand what I mean? And I think that we have to understand that we know better now, and when you know better, you do better. Mm -hmm. There's no reason to give these people the stage. And this is the other thing I think: we are under the impression that our education is whole. Mm -hmm. But that is a lie, Rachel. Like, like what, who, are the, who are the women poets we know from the modernist era? era? We know H.D., we know Gertrude Stein, we know, um, we know um, uh, Marianne Moore, mm -hmm. for instance. Do, right. do you understand what I'm saying? Like, we know these poets, but we're talking about one of 
I mean, if, if we have to compare it to now, certainly the world was more sexist then. Certainly right. the world was more misogynist. So who are the women poets that never got to write or that were writing and we never read or that were writing really well but never published in the places to where now they would be in the Norton? Do you understand what I'm saying? Absolutely. And if any time those people can be locked out from us and they didn't do anything wrong, I think mm -hmm. it's okay for us to lock some people out who mm -hmm. did do something wrong. Do you understand what I mean? I do. I do know. I do understand what you mean. I, it's, it's very interesting. I mean... You know, just to be blunt, like, you know, one of the, the situations that we're sort of not talking about but talking about, you know, he, he'd been posting anti-Semitic stuff on Facebook forever. Mm -hmm. I love his poetry. Mm -hmm. I think it's really interesting. I you mean, like his second book? I think I like... It's what, really bad. It, well, <laughs> I, I think... I can't believe Jeff I'm, published that I'm book. glad it exists. I'm mm -hmm. glad that it, it opened up a space in a way. I'm glad... I don't know. I, I, that book was interesting to me. It was important to me. It spoke to me. It, it, it was, it was angry, and it was, uh -huh. it was, it pushed the limits for me of what I think poetry even is, and the ways in which I think it was bad mm -hmm. were interesting, mm -hmm. not just boring bad. Well, I will say the first book, um, though the poems from the first book were sort of old by the time the first book came out. Um, the, the first book was very important to me and, and the way I could think about, you know, how to make a thing without using an eye, mm -hmm. um, how to make a thing that really ran forward on, on rhythm and on music. Right. Um, so, I mean, the, I mean, he could write. Like, I'm, yeah. not, I'm not saying that that wasn't a possibility. I guess I also am thinking about, you know, like, I don't, it's, it's such a weird position to be in because I'm really trying to figure it out. I, in no way do I want to defend you know, sleaze bags and, and, and hurtful people. Mm -hmm. And you're absolutely right. Like, I don't want, I don't, I don't want to defend them. And I definitely don't want them around my students. I mm -hmm. feel so protective of my students, mm -hmm. um, you know, and of just people. But I guess I'm thinking also about like my friends who, you know, who have non-normative sex lives, you know, many partners, mm -hmm. um, BDSM, engagements and they want to write about that stuff and I, you know I don't have a judgment about that but other people sure do yeah and so I don't know Yeah, but all that happens with people's consent though like right. when you have so a non-normative sex me, life that includes me, several partners that's I, still about you all I, of those people knowing they're one of several partners you right? and I are totally on the same page about that I guess what I'm saying is that other people are not other people are, are feel like there's a way that people should do things, and then other people are, you know, to well, me, the line is consent. Yes. You know. Well, there I, is but, a way that people should do things, and the way is to mind your own business. Mm -hmm. And then when something becomes your business, to mind that, too. Like, that's your business now, right. you know? Like, we just have to, we have to understand that there are only, like, 12 of us. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, we're not, you know, we're not even, like, musicians. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? Like, there are, you know, there are somewhere between 12 to 16 of us in the country. And, you know, and, like, 47 in the world. Do, do, uh -huh. do you understand what I mean? And so we have to, we have to act like that. Like, we can't, we can't pretend that we're not a part of each other's lives mm -hmm. in certain ways where, I mean, we have to be protective of one another. Yeah. We have to watch out for one another and the truth Rachel is if somebody's doing bad things there should be an opening once we realize that they're doing a bad thing where we can say hey 
get you some help, mm-hmm. you're doing bad things because mm-hmm. they're still a part of this family. Right. But if they don't do that, you know, if they don't want to hear that they're doing things, if they don't notice that they're leaving a wake of like, you know, a trail of hurt people behind them. Right. Then we have to do something about the hurt people. Like we can't just keep coddling the person who's hurting the people. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I think you're right. I think you're right. I don't know why I don't know why I even spend so much time thinking about it because, well, that's, because that's how I feel. But you know, I think I mean Alice Walker would say that this is like I mean, we were talking about this a second ago. Like she would say this is a function of whiteness. Yeah. Like this whole idea that you look at the work and not at the person and you know, and obviously I believe this is true and yet where did I get that from? Mm-hmm. Like where did I get this this idea that you can do whatever you want to do? And what's interesting to me is that we don't have that sense in anything else, but we do in poetry. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, like if we like you know, like in when we found out I mean, we actually knew already that Bill Clinton had cheated on his wife you yeah. know, when we elected him to president. But that was a big deal. I remember him running for office and that being one of the things that might keep him from, in spite of the fact that she was with him and clearly had gotten through that. Do you right. know what I mean? Like this whole thing with Monica Lewinsky that happened was a big deal. Like, like I, you know, and people like me and probably people like you were like saying, I don't care. <laughs> you know? Like, you know, if he, like I don't, but like, you know, maybe we should have cared if somebody was like trying to sleep with his intern in his office <laughs> do, you know, do you know what I mean like well, all we cared about was well well is he is he a good good whatever that means how you be a good president of this country my god right. but you know is he a good president do you know what I'm saying and that's the kind of stuff that I know I've thought a lot about why I was willing to excuse so much mm-hmm. for Bill Clinton and I'm you know not only not willing to excuse anything for Trump but I'm just you know I mean, I'm just horrified beyond belief. But I I I, also, to go back to what you were just saying about, uh, you know, the way in which some of this is about whiteness, even if it seems like it's about something else. I mean, you know, I, I, when I watched that second debate, I, I, I literally felt um, shaky and Mm -hmm. um, very, very upset Mm -hmm. about the way Trump was like looming behind Hillary. And I, I, I saw, and I said to I was my, like, oh my God, he is walking over there. Yeah. Like I was watching it with friends and I kept saying, oh my God, he's walking over. Like, and I kept doing my hand in front of my face because I was like, oh, it's going to happen. And I don't want to see it when right. it happens. Like when he well, I said, slaps I, her. Right. Something. And I, I said to my husband, I just want to know, is there someone who's going to jump out and get him if he tackles her? Yeah. And, you know, my husband was like, that's not going to happen. And I was like, I feel in my body it's <laughs> going it to happen. happen. Yeah. You know, so I do feel that. But I also feel like, OK, I'm glad that there's outrage over this. And it's also really clear that this outrage is in part really based on like this country's obsession with protecting white women. Mm -hmm. This guy has been saying Mm -hmm. all manner of horrible white Mm -hmm. supremacist Mm -hmm. bullshit for so long Uh that that can get people killed. And I'm not, you don't have to choose which is worse, you know, mm-hmm. misogyny or racism. Mm-hmm. They are both bad. <laughs> like but, bad is bad. But, but, the, but it is, it is, you know, it's, it, I feel outraged. I feel upset. And I also feel aware of the fact that that outrage is on some level part of what keeps white people in power. Mm-hmm. 
mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. I don't know I think you know I think all these things are really I don't know I guess the question that I was going to ask you that whole just even talking about Trump because we feel like I need to lie down um, I think, but I just I just want to say I think the thing with Trump is that we as I mean and this goes back to what I, this just goes back to what I'm saying I don't think there's a I mean there are obviously people who don't care who really aren't thinking about it and they're sort of blindly following Donald Trump but I, I think people generally um, I hope people generally uh, even the people who were going to vote for him had this inkling that he was not capable of doing the job yeah that's very different from any kind of inkling that we had about Bill Clinton for whatever right. reason we thought Bill Clinton was doing the job and therefore we didn't well, want to know this, this goes back thing. to what, what what I just asked you earlier because my sense was but I I think this is really problematic my sense was he was a good um, president mm-hmm. to you know in some ways in mm-hmm. mo- in many ways mm-hmm. and he was a good person mm-hmm. whatever that means and he had a problem with women mm-hmm. and not to excuse it but that this was you know it, it, it is true that what he was doing in his personal life had a grave negative effect mm-hmm. on this mm-hmm. country and on mm-hmm. other people mm-hmm. but he I he I didn't feel I did feel that there was some separation between what he was doing in his personal life and the way he was abusing his power and the way he was very confused about the, you know, the personhood of women. But I didn't feel that he was like, you know, it would be great is if I threw a woman to their ground and like had mm-hmm. my and like Trump, <laughs> Trump is actually just like, I think this is part of being president mm-hmm. at that. I'm going to get to do well, all he these thinks things. It's part of just being a man. Yeah. Right. And like, that seems that does seem different to yeah. me. Like mm-hmm. that's that's his platform. That's, yeah, right. that's, not, that's not like, oh, well, that's his like private yeah. bad behavior. Mm-hmm. I'm going to try to close this door. And he's on. under this assumption that everybody else wants to do it. All right. Let me ask you another question. Ask me, me a lot of questions. My, let me look at my questions here. Um, ask more hard questions. Those were hard questions. You those don't were think? great hard questions. They yeah. were very hard. Do you have a hard question you want me to ask Mm-mm. you? No. No. Okay. I don't. I don't question. <laughs> I mean, okay. So this is actually part of the of what we've been talking about, uh, and part of it is about you know whether poetry is an insular place or whether it can have it can what we do as poets can have uh, a, an effect um, social a, a social political effect and how you feel at the current moment in history about language like I keep thinking about you know and there's so many things that Donald Trump said that are just so unbelievably offensive but one of them is it's just language it's just language among all the other horrible things about him I'm thinking like that's my whole life mm-hmm. is just language mm-hmm. not really but mm-hmm. that is the question he said that a lot didn't he it's just language folks it's just talk yeah so yeah. I guess the, if if what we do is just language does that have an effect on the world like do you feel right now at this moment in history when so many bad things are happening that being a poet is a way an effective way on some level of responding um you know i'm actually fascinated by the idea that it's not an effective way Mm. of responding um you know what, what happens when we write a poem is that we do work on ourselves first 
And so, you know, the only person that you can really save is you. So if I figure something out, if I start asking a different set of questions because I'm writing a poem or because of some realization that I make in the midst of writing a poem, uh, then I have done something that changes my mind, mm -hmm. right? And if I change my mind, if I truly change my mind, I change my actions. Um, and it's true. I mean, you know, I don't have a bunch of books. I only have two books. Mm -hmm. But it is true for me that every time I finish a book, I feel like I can live a little bit better. Like, I feel like I do feel a little more liberated, a little more free. I do feel like, oh, I figured this thing out that I thought I would never figure out. Uh -huh. And I'm a little bit more comfortable with myself in the world. And because I'm a little more comfortable with myself, I can be a little bit more loving. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and more loving in particular to people who are somehow supposedly not like me or don't look like me or, or don't have the same background that I have. Do you know what I'm saying? I do. Don't you, do you feel this way when you finish a book? You know, I, I was in, I went to synagogue on Wednesday, it mm -hmm. was Yom Kippur, and I always think I'm gonna hate it. Mm -hmm. um, and I always think that I'm gonna go to synagogue and the, mm -hmm. the, you know, the rabbi is gonna say, you know, Jews are better than other people, <laughs> you know, or mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. don't eat pork or, you know, whatever. And that's never what happens, mm -hmm. you know? So he said this thing that I, that I felt was so profound. And he said, I don't think God and prayer, it's not a cosmic vending machine. Mm -hmm. You know, he, we were about to say a prayer um, for hoping that that anyone we know who's sick would would be healed and he said you know i don't i can't believe in a god who answers some prayers and others you know just in a capricious way mm -hmm. and i and he said but you know prayer doesn't change god but it changes you mm -hmm. and i mean maybe that's just so obvious but i hadn't heard it in mm -hmm. that way somehow before and you know, I've read a, a few things that you've said about the connection between poetry and prayer and the mm -hmm. way in which poetry is prayer. So mm -hmm. on some level, I feel like I'm getting the same message. You know, you're, you're, mm -hmm. you're my rabbi today, like that, that, okay, maybe poetry doesn't change the world, mm -hmm. but if it changes you, um, that's the world. Yeah. You know, the, the only, the, the only world that exists for each of us is the one we perceive. That's the world. <laughs> so the only person, the only thing that you can't change from the out in, you can only change from the in out. You can only shift perception. You can only work on perception. Do you understand what I mean? That doesn't mean all the bad things that are really bad things go away, but it does mean that you know, at least you know the one that you, now you can see some that you didn't see before. And now you can prioritize them in a different way and understand them in a different way. Do you understand what I'm, like I this do, idea? I do know what you're saying, and I deeply, I'm deeply moved by it, and also like super frustrated and outraged by it because we, all of us who were, you know, writing poems, I mean, it's not like we're all good people, but but we did, we weren't we weren't the ones who were shooting people up mm -hmm. already. Mm -hmm. So that's, I'm, I, you know, I do I do think you're right that that for me, writing poems, finishing a book, thinking this stuff through, you know makes me a bigger person, a more thoughtful person, a more empathetic person, a better mother, a better wife, a better citizen, a kinder person. And I do think that matters. Mm -hmm. I think it matters a lot. I think it helps me like raise my sons to be like fierce feminists mm -hmm. and fierce anti-racists. Mm -hmm. Like, absolutely. Mm -hmm. um, but at the same time, like at my worst, 
I'm not shooting people. Mm-hmm. And I guess I just, I want... You I want, want people to stop shooting people. I do. <laughs> like, don't shoot people. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Well, didn't you say somewhere, like, what the, what's the solution? Just stop being racist? Yeah. White people should just stop being they racist? They should, like, not do it. Yeah. Yeah. So, you but know... But you, you would have to, I mean... To stop being racist, you would have to first believe that there's a possibility that you are. Mm-hmm. And then you would also, I mean, this, I mean, that's the first step that, like, generally folk don't want to take. Right. They don't want to take the step of possibility. Um, and then after that, you would have to say, okay, well, if it's a possibility, I'm going to monitor myself a little bit and see what I do or how I act, you know, when I'm around people of color versus when I'm not. And you would have to, like, really do some work. Do you know what I'm right. saying? You know, people just don't want to do the work. They would rather fight. You know, you say they do a racist thing and they instantly want to, they want to fight you. Right. I think, um, but I think the feeling that we have from writing a poem may not be the exact same, but it is similar to the feeling that we have and others have from reading poems. And I, I just, I have to believe I mean, I have no choice, Rachel. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I have to believe that, I mean, I know for a fact for me, I mean, it is true. Like, at my worst, I'm not shooting people. At my worst, though, Rachel, I will fight you physically mm. in a bar. Mm. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? You're going to win. <laughs> I mean, I will fight. I'm not going to win. <laughs> <laughs> well, not you, but a person. I know, I know I would what never you fight you. <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> but, like, but for me... I have to believe that the feeling that I felt when I first read SX Hemphill or when I first read Nikki Giovanni, like that, that, that feeling that I felt that, oh, I need to act right. <laughs> like I need to see the world and be more authentic and be more honest and tell myself the truth about things more often. Who, like, who are the other poets that, that you, when you read them, you were like, I need to act right? I, I felt that way, I feel that I felt that way about um, Langston Hughes. Mm-hmm. I mean, these are actually the poets I read before I was even ten years old. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I felt that way about Nikki Giovanni and, and Langston Hughes chiefly when I was a kid. And then when I was in college, I found a poet named Essex Hemphill, who uh, was probably the beginning of me being honest about who I really was as a black gay man. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would say... How'd you find him? Someone, someone gave him There's a man you? named Rudolph Bird who was a um, Harlem Renaissance scholar. I had this fellowship at Emory, believe it or not, uh, when I was an undergrad uh, from the UNCF Mellon Foundation. And uh, while I was there, he put these poems in my hand. He was like, you need to read this. Wow. And it totally changed everything. I remember reading those poems in a library, too. Reading, he has a book called Ceremonies, and I remember reading that book in the library and literally after every poem looking over my shoulder like i was so afraid wow. like i was feeling this connection to the work that didn't seem i had never felt anything like that before like that intimacy that we now want to feel every right. time we go read were you afraid for yourself for him for the that the connection would be broken what i was, was af- i was just i don't know i don't i still don't know how to identify it but i remember physically trying to get through poems but also feeling like I felt like he was there or somebody else could be there <laughs> like I don't want to get caught reading <laughs> it was very strange it's very strange yeah because it like, was that intimate exactly yeah and so for me um those moments changed who I 
they came at the right time. Mm-hmm. And I just have to believe that my work, you know, your work doesn't have to like reach a bunch of people. I mean, it just needs to reach the right one. Mm. Do you know what I'm saying? Like well, I know people feel that way about your work. Well, I hope so. You know? I mean, I hope so. I mean, but then again, I can't, like I was saying before, it's like we can't count on, you know, a prize every five seconds. <laughs> you know, the thing about like whatever people perceive as popularity is you have to be aware that it can come and go. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. And the poets, there are poets that we, I mean, there are poets that we thought of that I thought were like, oh, my God, he's so famous. Jesus Christ. <laughs> You're like, oh, wow. You go see some of these people give a reading now, and it's like you and three other people sitting there. Yeah. Do you know what I'm saying? Sometimes I'm the one giving that reading. Yeah. <laughs> Exa- oh, me too, Rachel. <laughs> yeah, I know. You know what I mean? I so, know. you know, it's. Did one time, Doug Powell and I, he was teaching at Harvard, and I was in New York, and uh, we organized this reading at, in Providence mm-hmm. at this bookstore and he came down and I came up and um, there was one person who showed up and I the whole way on the train I like bought the you know the train ticket was expensive and I was like well it's D.A. Powell I mean <laughs> you know I'm like this is like this is like my best like I'm like I'm just you know I'm gonna have the biggest audience of my life yeah, because yeah. this is awesome there was one person mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. uh, Okay. And Doug's a very important poet. Yeah, he is. Like it's that's not even I'm not exaggerating in any way. Yeah. I um, mean, but part of the reason why I know he's important is because his work is important to me. Mm-hmm. It holds space in my heart, you know. And that's that's all we can hope for. We can we just have to hope that the work holds a certain amount of space in any single heart, mm-hmm. right? Not that it has to like touch every heart. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. It's just gotta like. And, and I think, I mean, I want to believe, I want to believe that that makes a difference. Yeah. So. What are you working on now? I don't know. <laughs> what do you mean you don't know? You don't know or you don't want to tell me? Or you really don't know? I want to tell you, but I'm a scary cat. I am. Um, what, what's going to happen if you tell me? Well, I'll figure it out. I'll start uh-huh. talking and I'll talk about it too much. Oh, and it'll like, it'll ruin it somehow. The more I write, well, I don't know, maybe it's. It's either gestating or it's halfway through. It's halfway through still gestating. Yeah. Um, well, it the, depends. The I more I write, the more I have before. to trick myself into not knowing what's going on. And so that means I have to do certain things like, I mean, and I actually think it's a good idea. I try to get my students to do this, but they're, they're much too, I mean, they're at a stage of a certain kind of obsessiveness, right? Um, But, like, I can't read the poems. Like, I always have to go back to the poems after at least 30 days. Interesting. Um, Because if I read the poems, like, I can work on the poem, but I really need to, like, write the draft, leave it alone, and go back 30 days later. If I do something before that, then I start thinking about something other than language. I start thinking thematically, Mm -hmm. which is not a good idea, particularly for a poet like me, who's working with stuff that people think of as issues or stuff that people think of as confessional or stuff that people think of as po- political. Do you understand mm-hmm, what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, and those are going to be my things. Like there's, there's probably no way around that. And so instead of me trying to write poems that are working against the things that are my things, or instead of me writing poems that try to put the things before language, right? It's better if the things come out 
if they can still somehow, even though I know they're going to be my things, if my view of those things can still surprise me in the poems. Uh That has to happen. And if I talk about them too much, I mean, this is why, like, applying for stuff is really hard. There has to be a... We need to, like, boycott (laughs) all of the things that ask us to tell people what we're going to be working on. Like, you know, I'm going to be like... Well, what did did you say for your Guggenheim? Did you say, I'm writing new poems? Or did you make up a whole thing and then... I make up a whole thing. And and the whole thing this time was closer to what I was going to do. But as soon as I made it up, and sent the thing off, yeah. I started doing something else. Interesting. And part of the reason I started doing something else is because I wrote that description. So huh. that description was based on the poems that are toward the thing I'm doing. But then I couldn't do it anymore. I didn't want to do it anymore. After I wrote the description, I was bored to pieces. I'm not bored with the poems, but I was bored to pieces with having read the poems in that light. Right. Like it's much more useful to me to write the book and then figure out as I'm putting it in order, mm. oh, this is what my book is about. And when people ask me these questions, I'll be able to say these things. But if I'm doing that while I'm writing the poems, then it's like, okay, well, then that's over. <laughs> so interesting. Do you know what I mean? I do know what you mean. It's not, I don't think it works quite the same way for me. I mean, I think that when I get a certain number of poems, I do start to write towards the book. Mm-hmm. I, think, I think that I. But what I is think that number? Is it the poems or is it the pages? Well, a lot of in my new manuscript, the poems are so long. Um, so, your poems are always long, Rachel. <laughs> <laughs> she thinks that her poems. She um, in my new manuscript. I'm like, <laughs> let, th- let me help you. <laughs> th- they're really they're all they're long. Yeah, they're longer. They're longer. Uh, they're they're not the longest that they've been, <laughs> but they're you know, and a lot of them are in prose. So that's really long. You know, they're like hiding. They're like, you know, a six-page poem in prose is really long. Yeah, that's a long poem. Yeah, it's long. I'm um, proud of you. Oh, I don't know. Oh, I, that's I a mean, feat, honey. Maybe I <laughs> <laughs> um, Yeah, I think, I, I mean, I think I, think I knew that I was going to write about death, and I think I knew I was going to write about whiteness, and I think I knew I was going to write about having teenagers um and I think I knew I was gonna write about sex more than I had and so well that sounds good well we'll see the more you write about it that means it's happening (laughs) (laughs) can't write about what you don't know honey yes god (laughs) oh man We'll, we'll, we'll see we'll see um, you want to read a poem? Sure. Do you, uh, you don't have any stuff with you, so you don't have any new stuff. No, I wish I, had, I did. I might can. be able to look a poem up. But I can read a poem from the book because you have the book here. Awesome. I'm sorry, I didn't know. No. I'll read Homeland. Awesome. Homeland. I knew I had jet lag because no one would make love to me. All the men thought me a vampire. All the women were women. In America that year, black people kept dreaming that the president got shot. Then the president got shot, breaking into the White House. He claimed to have lost his keys. What's the proper name for a man caught stealing into his own home? I asked a few passengers. They replied, Jigger. After that, I took the red eye. I took to a sigh deep as the end of a day in the dark fields below us. Some slept but nobody named security ever believes me. Confiscated, Maya Tripla. 
my Celexa, my Cortisone, my Clonopin, my Flexoreal, my Zyrtec, my Nasoreal, my Percocet, my Ambien. Nobody in this nation feels safe, and I'm still a reason why. Every day, something gets thrown away on account of long history, or hair, or fingernails, or yes, of course, my fangs. I'm sort of interested in making what I, what I hope is a subversive poem, but putting it in a form that at first, I mean, I, I mean to subvert our idea of poetry yes. through using the tools that we've been given um, and through using the forms that we've been given. Um, I mean, what I really want to do, and I mean, for me, I mean, in all honesty, Rachel, you know, the, the, the magisculation that I do at the end of the line, the use of, you know, going back and forth to the sonnet or something that looks like a sonnet or the, 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 rhyme, the direct rhyme in some of the mm-hmm. poems. Like that for me has a lot to do with the way I read people like Gwendolyn Brooks and County Cullen and Claude McKay. And the way I read their work is that they are inscribing. They are like re They are like pushing into this thing that doesn't want them. Um, in many cases, their queerness, definitely their blackness. They're pushing that into these, this, this space where they belong, where they're from, where they, you know, the language that they know, you know, um, and that's the tradition. When I think about what tradition I'm working in, that's, that's what I'm trying to do. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm concerned about it though. I have to say, because there seems to be this huge push for poetry as opposed to a push for the poem. Mm. Um, the trouble that I have had on, you know, on the, the, the National Book Awards jury uh, that I mentioned, you know, the last time we, we met and we talked about books is like I realized, oh, the reason why there's this sort of disconnect between what people are talking about and what I'm talking about is that often people read a book and you know it's a good book it's often a long meditated meditation mm-hmm. it doesn't have um any page that you would take out but it sort of all goes together uh-huh. and yeah. yet it's not as if it's an epic poem of yep. some sort where there's action or anything you know and so i always think oh these are that's really good poetry but i also think if we think about poetry in that way then it puts me in a position where I don't know what's not really good poetry. Do you know what I mean? Like, right, or that like, maybe you know, it's maybe like it's not Morrison's. a book filled with good poems. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Um, that's fascinating. And and you know we haven't talked about this. We're gonna have to we're gonna have to talk about this sooner or later because yeah. a lot of what we teach doesn't really answer to what is going on in the books we're loving the most. And many of the books that we love, um, many of the books that I mean, and I say I love. You can take a line from one page and put it anywhere else <laughs> in the book, and there would be it wouldn't really be that different of a reading experience. Do, right? Do you understand what I'm saying? I do. I do. And so, but that's not what we that's not what we learned directly. I mean, I'll, I think maybe we're teaching ourselves that, and I don't think that's what we teach our students. Do, do you understand what I mean? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and so that's the kind of thing that I'm sort of trying to negotiate 
as a contemporary poet, poet who's influenced by what the work of my peers, the books that are coming out now are doing. Mm -hmm. And this other belief that I have in like, you know, I have this huge belief in the poem that's on the, the, the mirror that is above the dresser. Right. Or the poem that's next to the door or on the refrigerator or next to the door that you have to look at before you leave or right. at least you know is there so you can remember a line Or from even it. the line in a poem. Exactly. Right, yeah. And so I, I, like, I like thinking about the small, complete thing. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I mean, you know, Jean likes thinking. Jean Valentine likes thinking about the small, complete. There, I mean, we're still here. There are plenty of us who are still on the planet Earth, and yet there seems, I think, to be a movement away from, and I, I would say maybe even, a prejudice against mm -hmm. <laughs> the small, complete thing. Because you know, as poets, part of what we're supposed to be doing is reinventing poetry. That is true. We're supposed to change. Um, our idea and, and readers' ideas about what a poem is and what a poem can be. Right. And uh, so I have to figure out how to do that every time I'm writing, but I also have to be true to whatever my poetics are at that particular time. Do you know what I'm saying? I do. I, I feel this always happens to me at the end of the conversation. I'm like, oh, we should start with that. Because <laughs> uh, I think this is a really, really fascinating um, question. And I'm not sure it's the same in internationally I, I don't I don't really have a strong enough sense but I do think that our obsession with like innovation and changing poetry is particularly American oh, that's on some level yeah, yeah, yeah. and and I think you know in that way I think I am partly responsible for not fully appreciating the small beautifully made thing mm -hmm. um, and I think I have trouble reading individual poems even though when I do and I read for that in that way I really mm -hmm. you know satisfied and mm -hmm. it's mm -hmm. so much joy and pleasure but I think that I do privilege uh, books that are changing what I think poetry mm -hmm. is or mm -hmm. what it's for mm -hmm. and that are working in like longer looser forms and to some extent that's not really even poetry mm -hmm. <laughs> and mm -hmm. and it and I, I, I think it's a really really interesting mm -hmm. moment to be at and thing to think about like you know, without, I don't think that defending or um, valuing the small, ma well-made thing makes someone a traditionalist in a bad way mm -hmm. at all. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I, yeah, I have mm -hmm. to think about that. Well, I had somebody ask me, I, I really hadn't thought about it, but recently, like within the last year, um, somebody, I did an interview for, I think, the Yale Review, and uh, the guy who had curated the questions, one of his questions was pretty directly like, you know, Maggie Nelson's doing this and Claudia Rankin's doing that, and, um, oh, and why am I, I love, I love this book, and I can't remember who wrote it. Who wrote Address? Exactly. Uh, Willis, Elizabeth Willis. Elizabeth. <laughs> no, I really like this book. Yeah. Um, I mean, but I mean, his sense of what was happening in that book and my sense of it was different because what he was saying is obviously poetry is in prose. Why are you still writing in lines? I mean, he pretty much asked me directly, what the hell are you doing? Like, what's the plan, Dan? <laughs> you know but I, mean? I think Elizabeth Willis absolutely resists uh, the, the, the sort of long, sprawling. Well, he used her. Yeah. He, um, I hadn't read her most recent book, which is, I think, A New and Selected. Uh -huh. And maybe the new in The New and Selected was was pr more prose. Interesting. Uh, more prose poetry. But I I mean, I am I am still here for the whale wrought line. Yeah. 
you know, I'm still here for a line of poetry. Like the belief that a line can like change like the way I'm seeing something or how my day is like shaping up. I'm yep. still writing for that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm still here for the line as a unit. Um, I haven't given up on it yet. I mean, who knows what might happen, but right now I still love writing in lines. So. I'm glad you're still here. Jared. Yeah, I'm glad I'm still here. Yeah. Too. <laughs> All right. Which questions did I miss? This has been episode 16 of Commonplace, Conversations with Poets and Other People. Music by Moses Zucker-Gorin, design work by Eitan Darwish. Commonplace producers are Nicholas Fuenzalita, Christine LaRusso, and Zach Tackett. Commonplace advisor is Daniel Schiffman. Thank you, Commonplace patrons and the wonderful presses and publishers that are supporting the podcast. University of Pittsburgh Press, Princeton University Press, New Directions Press, Night Boat Books, Grey Wolf Press, Wave Books, New Issues Press, Copper Canyon Press, and an anonymous donor who enabled us to purchase a mic for outdoor on-the-go recording. Hopefully, my new wacky idea will bear fruit. Stay tuned to find out, and thank you all so much for listening. Mm